Hello, my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. If you want to feel good about yourself today, I have a suggestion that will help you. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Then, give an amount that makes you feel good. You'll be amazed by your own awesomeness all day. Good morning. My name is Louise, and I'm the recovering wife and the recovering mother of two alcoholics. I'm also a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. To speak at Blackstone is really a mountaintop experience. And I want to, before I forget, thank the Board of Trustees for the opportunity to give back so many things that I've carried away from Blackstone. I also want to thank AA for two things, or some other things. And one of them is that I can say that I'm the recovering wife and the recovering mother of two alcoholics. And also, that looking at it as a family disease, you shared your 12 steps, 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts with us. And it was Bill who said Al-Anon was the best thing that came along after AA. And I'm grateful for him for that. I'm going to tell you a little bit what it used to be like and what it's like today. I was born in New England, the tiniest of 48, little old Rhode Island. I was born in the country. My mom and dad had nine children, and I have four brothers and four sisters, and I also have a red-headed twin sister. We're nothing alike. <laughs> she has red hair, and she has always been a dependent person. And I am a little bit the other way. I'm a little bit sometimes too dependent, uh, independent. But um, I had a good childhood. My grandmother had 18 children. And this household was always busy. Both doors were always open. And when you got up in the morning, you never knew whether you were going to have four or 14 sat down to eat. We didn't have a whole lot materially, but back in those days, nobody had a really a whole lot. Focus wasn't on material things. We were a part of a community. We were involved in the community. We made our own entertainment. We didn't have TV. <laughs> we were lucky to have radios, and for years we had kerosene lamps. So life was at a different pace. And um, in my early childhood, my father was my best friend. Since there was two of us, my father took me with him, and I swung hours between his long legs, and uh, he would take me to work with him, and he was a finished carpenter. If you all don't know what that is, it finishes the inside of houses usually. And he'd take me to work with him. And to keep me busy, he'd give me a two-by-four, and when he'd go by, he'd hand me a handful of nails, and I'd drive them in, and when he came back by, he'd take them out, and I'd re-drive them. Or he'd give me a saw, and I'd saw some wood, and if I really got bored, he'd give me some string, and he'd say, lay me out a house. And I'd drive these stakes in the ground and go out there and lay out a house. But the neat part was, he always came back and always took time to sit down and say, well, why did you open this door this way? And why doesn't that happen this way? And uh, we had a very good relationship. He was my best friend. Well... Along with the good things he gave me, 
And we'd sit on the front porch and sing songs with Mom, and she could play the piano, and we did good things like this, so we'd get on the front porch and tell stories. And we made our own entertainment as we went. He taught us to square dance before we ever went to school. And at that time, he rolled up the carpets, and Pop would go up in the country and pick up a banjo player and a fiddle player. And first thing you know, the whole house was rocking. And we had some good times together. World War II came along, and all of this went. My brother-in-laws, my brothers all went in service. There was no gasoline to get anywhere, so we moved into the city, and he went in defense work. Uh, this was 19, before World War II, and along the way, I ran into a Salem, and he was dark-haired and had big black eyes, and he stole my heart. And you know what happened. We got married, and it was during the war, and I was 18, and he was 19, and we were off and running. Well... The, he got in trouble the first time I ever met him. <laughs> he was at the Y and he was drinking he wasn't supposed to be. And I took him home and got him straight so he wouldn't miss his ship. You know how it goes. And I started to be a caretaker. <laughs> well, it wasn't long after we were married that my brother-in-law came home and they had a little party. And he decided that he needed to get some air, so he was going out of a second-story window onto a roof to cool off. <laughs> and I can remember hanging on to his legs and somehow with help got him back in there. I should have known there was a problem. But I didn't. <laughs> well, things went from downhill. And we ended up with four children, four boys. I was outnumbered, because some of you might not know what it's like to live in a household with five men folks, <laughs> and you get sort of left out. Well, I just want to tell you a couple of incidences, and then I'm going to move on. And uh, alcoholism progressed, and these boys, I was teaching Sunday school, and the boys were involved in church. And one of them sang solo in the primary choir, and I was real proud of this. But like so many other things in alcoholism, this too changed because instead of driving us and going with us to church, he'd go to the bootleggers who was down the block and pick us up on the way home. Well, the depths of degradation is to have a drunk pick you up in front of the church with all these people getting out of church. And uh, it outweighed itself, and we decided we'd better off staying home. So we gave up church or moved away from the church. And uh, I can remember one night I had a job, and I went to work because I came out of this big family where everything was wide open. I moved to Virginia, and uh, I had no connection with people. And I like people. Any of you who know me know this. I I'm just have to have people. That's all there is to it. And uh, I found myself pretty much isolated. He was drinking every night I was at home. And I went to work 
Not because I needed to, but because of my need for people. And uh, I'm glad I did, because I think through the depths of alcoholism, that that probably saved my sanity. Although it was when you came home at night and the lights were all on, there was a definite fear there. If they weren't on, you hoped everything was all right. It got to the place where you hated to leave, but then you hated to come back. And you all know what that's like. Well, um, I can remember one night I was working 4.30 to 2 o'clock in the morning, and I came home and the lights were all on, and of course the old flip-flop started. And when I got in the house, he had a buddy, and they were drinking in the kitchen. Well, I couldn't go to bed because the bedroom was right across the hall. And so after coaxing and pleading and nothing seemed to work, I decided, well, I'll do something about this. So I went in the boys' bedroom, and I was fumbling around in the closet, and I woke one of these boys up, and he said, Mom, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm looking for the wiffle bat. And he said, what are you going to do with the wiffle bat? I said, I'm going to knock your dad out so I'll get some sleep. <laughs> and he said, Mom, if you're going to knock him out, at least get the ball back. <laughs> well, this child, who was a teenager, took his dad back in the bedroom, and he set him on the bed, and he took off his shoes, and first thing you know, he had him in the bed covered up. He went in the closet, got a blanket and a pillow, and moved to the couch. This child had more sense than his mom. I didn't see this then. Well, um, and then there came a night when he decided he was going to leave, you know how it goes, and all the drawers get open, and he packs a suitcase and all these crazies, and he left. Well, I spent that evening getting the kids ready so that if he came back, I slept a big one with a little one, and if he came back and he was rowdy, they was to go out the back door, hide in the cornfield. I was going to get the keys, because by this time I learned to drive out of necessity. And I would take the car, go around the block, blow the horn, and pick him up. Well, Gene came in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he knocked on the door because I locked up, which is something I never did. I locked the door. You know where I was? with my nose to the window pane, thinking, you know, what if? No sleep. I was exhausted. About 4 o'clock in the morning, he comes in. I run, jumped into bed, you know, and he shook the door. And so I finally got up and let him in, made up like I was in bed, sound asleep. And he came on in, and he said, I feel so bad. And I said, well, if you feel bad, get in the bed, and maybe when you sleep, you'll feel better. Gene didn't do much to these kids, but look what I did. I didn't see that. I could justify it away. I was taking care of them, even with the blood ifs. Well, things didn't get much better. And it was along about this time that I was in the living room one morning early, because I was still working 4.30 to 2. I had a five-year-old, so I had to get up in the morning, get the boys off the stool, and take care of this one. So when he took his nap, I got a little nap, and I wasn't getting much sleep. And uh, I got up this morning and was running the vacuum cleaner, and suddenly 
I felt so alone, and I thought, you know, it's not right for somebody with four boys and a husband to be this lonely. And suddenly I realized that I didn't have to be alone. All I had to do was reach my hand out, and God would put his hand in mine. And this, I think, saved my sanity till we made this program. Well, it wasn't long after that before um, my mother and dad decided to come for the winter. And with my Yankee pride, I didn't tell my mom and dad he was drinking. And they decided to come for the winter. It was about Thanksgiving. And this was one of those terrible, terrible days. He took the boys and went to the ball game. And he was drinking at the ball game, and his buddies couldn't stand it any longer, so they hitched him to the cyclone fence. Took his belt loose and tied him up to the cyclone fence. <laughs> and he had my boys out there. And, of course, I heard about it as soon as they got in. He brought somebody else home from the ball game who got tangled up with his plate at the dinner table. It was a day of disaster. And that evening, he figured this was a good time. Now, I have three generations in the house. Thanksgiving, he decides this is a good day to take his life. So we battle over shotgun. And out of complete disgust, I handed him the double-barrel shotgun, and I said, nothing else seems to make you happy, so help yourself. And he took the shotgun, put it under his chin, pulled both barrels, and the gun jammed. <coughs> and he went to bed. <laughs> I spent the next three years, or the first three years in Al-Anon, trying to work my way through this. Because I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd see a police car, I'd see the bubblegum machine spinning. And uh, I would say, well, you know, you gave him the gun. You knew it was loaded. Now the kids have neither mother or father because you're going to jail and he's going to be dead. So I blew this all out of proportion. Well, it wasn't long after that before, I guess it was 4.30 or so in the morning, I heard him beating on the wall. And I got up to see what was going on. And he was begging, please, somebody, please, somebody, God help me. And I went there and said, if you'll come to bed and get some rest, we'll see what we can do in the morning. Well, we had tried the rounds of taking him to the hospital, and that didn't work, because this is back in 1963. And it wasn't much good to take uh, a drunk to a hospital. So... Um, he slept till morning when the paper boy flipped the paper about 5.30. That was the end of that. So I decided to go for some help. And I didn't have any idea where I was going. But I suddenly remembered this minister. And uh, I went to him and told my tale of woe. In the meantime, I asked the young lady upstairs who lived upstairs over us if she would watch these boys till I get back because I didn't know where I was going or how long I was going to be. And I went to his mom and dad, and I said, uh, I'm going for some help. And it may be that he'll end up in Central State Hospital. And if he does, I want you to know that if I start it, I'm carrying it through. And if you don't like it, you better tell me right now, because that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
And I ended up at the minister's, and I am told him my tale of woe. And he stood in the middle of Flo and he shook. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Now, if he has a heart attack, that's my fault, too. <laughs> well, I've been in the drugstore many, oh, a couple of years before my dad was sick. He was with us. And I had gone in for a whole lot of supplies, and I was working with the druggist. And Gene followed me in the drugstore, and he was crying. It was Saturday morning. And the druggist looked up at me and said, Louise, do you know there's a doctor in town that helps people like your husband? I was too busy that day to do anything. But you know, it planted a seed. In the moment of desperation, it came right to me. And uh, I said, I know there's a doctor in the town that helps people like this. And he said, well, Louise, who is it? And I told him, he said, that's easy. And he sat down and he made a phone call. And this doctor said, tell her to come right down. I've never seen him. Two miracles happened that day. One was that he was in his office, because this was Saturday, and he had just bought a new home at Nags Head, and he was going down every weekend. And the second thing was, when he called the hospital to see if there was a bed, there was a bed available. I went to the doctor's office, and I was like a zombie. I don't know if I ate breakfast or I didn't eat breakfast. I went to the doctor's office, and I was waiting there, and he happened to walk by. I'd never seen him, and he patted me on the head, and he said, It's okay, honey. Most wives think they're responsible. And I thought, you know, he understands. So he told me, in no uncertain terms, that he would help the alcoholic if I would promise him that I would go to Al-Anon. Now, I say I was sentenced to Al-Anon, and I really was. Well, he made the 12-step call and came to the house to see Gene. And when I came in the door, the whole place was upside down. The oldest boy had a metal stool in the middle of the living room with a bowl of soup on it, and he was eating his lunch. And the TV was playing. And Gene said, you went off and left the kids by themselves. And to keep from having a fuss, I ran in the bathroom and shut the door. And the doctor knocked at the door. And he said, he didn't want the neighbor, he wanted him. And he asked him, could he come in? And he told this boy, now this is something I never could have got away with. He told the boy, take your bowl of soup and go back to the kitchen. He reached over, cut off the TV. And he talked to him, and he said, would he check his chest? I forgot to tell him he had uh, bronchitis. I was too busy with the other things that were so important, you know. But he had bronchitis. And so he called the hospital, and there was a bed available, and he put him in the hospital. Well, come Monday morning, he told me that he was contacting AA, and Gene's first sponsor was Essie. And she picked him up at the hospital. And God love Essie because he was so good to me. She's the person that told me to keep an open mind. If it worked for other people, it could work for me. And that's the first thing I remember learning. Well, she took him to an AA meeting. And come Monday, he was transferred to MCV. And Dr. Sloan asked me, can you drive him to Richmond? Sure, I can drive him to Richmond. 
But what I didn't know was every stop sign we got to, he'd say, Woo, woo, stop, stop. And he was helping me drive, and I had a clutch car, and if you come off the turnpike, you go up a steep hill at MCV, and I couldn't do anything right, you know, but I got him there. And the next day, I had to drive to Richmond to prove to myself that I could still drive a car. I wouldn't take anybody with me because I had to prove to myself I could drive a car. Well, he went to MCV, to the uh, alcohol unit at MCV. And this led to 210 North Madison Street where we came in the programs. But this doctor said, now you have something else you have to do. And I thought, now what? And he says, you must go to work and tell them what's wrong with you. Well, this was terrible because there wasn't anything wrong with me. He's the guy with the problem, and if you work on him, everything will be okay. He said, no, you must. Well, I weighed 99 pounds soaking wet. I was scared to death. If you looked at me, I cried. And I went to work that day, and I was shaking all over, and I found my boss. Who, uh, and I never told anybody, see, what the problem was, because if he's stupid enough to drink and I'm stupid enough to live with him, I'm certainly not going to tell anybody. So it was all pushed down. And I went into work and I found his supervisor, and I said, Gilbert, there's something I have to do and I can't do it. And he said, yes, you can, honey, I'll help you. And I told him what I had to do, and I had to go in the main office with shift changing, tell the two superintendents that I needed 30 days on daylight to get this situation straightened up. So I went in, did my little tale, and came out and went to work. And a couple of hours later, the assistant superintendent came by, and he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Louise, do you know, for seven years we've been trying to figure out what is wrong with you. Well, I figured this worked, so I dressed these boys up, and I took them to MCV on Sunday morning. I said, well, if he had any other illness, this is what I would do. And I dressed them up, and I took them to MCV, and Gene was humiliated. I brought his children to an alcoholic unit. Well, unbeknown to him, I had gone to school and told them what was wrong with the children. <laughs> And it's the best thing I ever did, because they told me, now we know what we're dealing with. But what I really did was to sweep alcoholism out from underneath the rug and treat it as an illness, just like it is. Well, I went to Madison Street, 210 North Madison Street. I was scared to death. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know whether it was the Salvation Army beat the drum deal or just what was going to happen to me. And I walked in, and there was about eight people, including one of them was Earl, and also Bobby. And uh, they said, oh, come on, it's not that bad. And I went in my first meeting, and there was eight or ten Al-Anon sitting around a table, and I left with three very important things. One of them was, if they could do it, I could do it too. The second thing was, they told me that alcoholism was an illness. American Medical Association accepted it as such, and insurance claims were beginning to pay off for it. So it was classed as an illness. 
and I could fight it if I wanted or I could accept it as such. And they also told me that I could live my life one day at a time. That it was when I took yesterday, throwed it on top today, tomorrow, tomorrow, throw that in, willed it all up, and messed up today. And they told me you can break it down into manageable bits. You can make it till 10 o'clock, and then you can make it till noon, and you might can make it till 3, and then... And I thought, you know, maybe I could do this. And when I got in here, my self-worth was so bad that um, I made half beds and did half dishes. You know what that's like? So I had to get a chalkboard, and it came out of just for the day, and they gave me this pamphlet. It was a little yellow sheet and has the prayer of St. Francis on the back. And it said, I'll have a program. I may not follow it exactly, but I'll have one. And I wrote down ten things I wanted to accomplish. And as I did them, I crossed through them. Like, make bed, do dishes. And, and all the silly things, you know, that everybody else was doing, but I couldn't do. And I began to get my life somewhere in order. I uh, came to Blackstone. It must have been the fall of 63. And Blackstone has always meant so much to me because I've always carried so much away. It was here I learned that it was okay to cry when the choir was singing and you look up and the tears running down your cheeks, that's okay. It was okay to laugh because I didn't know it was okay to laugh. And just for the day said, you're as happy as you make up your mind to be. And I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and miserable. So I set out to be happy. Well, uh, we did a lot of doing, a lot of going, and my mother-in-law helped. And for the next seven years, I missed two Tuesday nights back and forth. And the closest meeting was 23 miles away to an Al-Anon meeting. I grew. I was eager. I grew. And... uh, we were three years in this program, and we went into the God office tailspin. Jean went on a dry rock that lasted nine months. I had sponsors, and one would pat me and say, Come on, honey, things are not that bad. And the other one would call a spade a spade, and I call her my tough love sponsor, and she would say, You know it, now do something about it. And it took the two, but somewhere it gave me balance. And I like to think that here did I not only recover, but I discovered. When people share their experience, strength, and hope, I picked up a little of me. For example, I went to a meeting and somebody said, if they went out and someone asked them, would you take cream and sugar in your coffee? Before he could answer, she'd speak up and say, oh, yeah, he takes cream and sugar. That was me. I discovered me there. And many, many other things. So I think of it as a discovery process because I found out a lot of things about me. But this three years, what do they say? No pain, no gain. I heard at a meeting that you could, I heard it, and, and it was an AA that said it. Said you could do everything but pay bills first things first. And I set out to pay bills first things first. 
I went home, my stubbornness, you know, I was going to prove that I could do it, and I did it. I got the trash can and cleaned out, stacked up, paid which was most important, over which was the easiest, and, and I put the program to work. It was also here that I heard that if you ask God to help you through this day and thank him at night, you stay sober. So I started doing that for Jean. And then one day I realized, well, maybe I needed some metal sobriety. <laughs> so I improvised a little trick. I didn't have a two pair of shoes, the one I wore to work, and another pair. So I took this shoe that I was going to wear the next day, and I'd get on my knees, and I'd put it way up under the bed, and I'd say, thank you, God, for this day. And at night, or in the morning, when I got up, it took me to my knees to get that out, that shoe out, before I could go to work to say, please go with me today. But I built a conscious contact with God. I could not see that my life was unmanageable. I saw that I was powerless over the alcoholic, but I couldn't see my life was unmanageable. I guess I had too much of a halo. <laughs> but I finally broke this down and finally saw it. It took a while. But it, it, it was in this period that um, Blackstone was coming up. And at that time, you didn't register way in advance. And I wanted to go to Blackstone so bad. I had, a, had another sponsor. And I wanted to come to meet her here. And I said, okay, God, gave up. This was Tuesday or something. And I gave up. I said, okay, God. to be the black mean for me to go to Blackstone, you're going to have to show me how. Because there wasn't any money. And he didn't really want to go. And don't you know, two days later, I got a check in the mail for a deposit on a gas meter some 15 years before. I got here and the sponsor wasn't here. And I remember sitting up in that lounge and I went to the pits. And this fine-looking young lady walked up to me, and she said, Are you Louise? And I said, Yes. And she said, I'm Mossy, and I'm from Texas. And I got a telephone call from Roanoke that said, You and I needed a little chat. And she took me by the hand and marched me out. Now, these may be coincidences to you, but I think they're God's little miracles. I get a slip of paper in the mail. It would be a note from her. And I'd shake it out because I couldn't find the letter. And a little piece of paper would fall out and it would say, God loves you because he's good, not because you're good. And somehow I realized that I was once again worthy of God's love. I came to Blackstone one time and I was having a difficult time. And as I came up the steps, this gray-haired old gentleman reached his arms out and said, Anybody told you they loved you today? I do. And I thought, oh, shucks. What have I got myself into? Is this a dirty old man deal or just what's happening? <laughs> he must have seen it on my face. He held me at arm's length and he said, Honey, it is for free. There are no strings attached. And I found unconditional love and a new meaning to it. 
That's why I can give and receive and give you a hug and think nothing of it. It's unconditional love. And I learned it right here. I never leave here that I'm not up on the top and it takes me a while to get down. I was, got involved in service. My first responses were in service. Service did for me what maybe nothing else did. It was part of the triangle. It was like sitting on a three-legged stool. It took, took all pieces. I went to Canada in 65, and I heard a workshop on the traditions. And it said, unity, recovery for the greatest number depended on unity. And I took that home with me, and I thought it will work in my family. If it works in the group, it will work in the family, and it will work in the workplace. And I put this to work. Participation was the key to harmony. And I learned not to be the super mom, but to go home, do the laundry, stack it, and say, your clothes are ready, you can put them away, and if you put them away, you'll know right where they are. And I quit being a super mom, and I got beds made that way, and I had one that didn't want his bed made. And I told these boys, I said, well... I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. I'll cook your favorite breakfast if you make your bed and pick up your clothes. And I had them all doing it with the oldest one. He was a bit rebellious. He didn't think he ought to have to make his bed. And I didn't cook his breakfast one morning. And, and he said, Mom, I didn't get mine. I said, did you get that bed? And he went back and made his bed. But he learned from it. But I took the three legacies, and put them to work. I got involved in service, and this took me away from him. It disentangled. I think of detachment as disentanglement, because I was like an octopus. And I was hanging on to these kids, and I was hanging on to him, and what I was really doing was taking away their God-given grace and dignity to be what they were. Well... I got involved in service, and I can remember the first time I was invited to speak. It was at the Mid-Atlantic Institute of Alcoholic Studies, and uh, I was so happy. I called this doctor, who by this time was my best friend, and I called him all excited, and, and uh, I said, what do you think? And he said, I think you're ready, and I think it's wonderful. In the background, I was hearing, no, it's not. You can't do that. And a whole lot of rumbling going on, he told me in a quiet way, he said, I think you'll figure a way. And I did. But service took me away, gave me something of my own, gave me an interest of my own, and I took my clutches off of the alcoholic and gave them to AA so you all could do your thing. And I'm grateful. I was the delegate in 74, 5, and 6. And I'll never forget going to New York first time, first time I'd ever flown on an airplane. And Dave Cook was a trustee at that time, and he came to the opening banquet. And I was so proud that I knew someone in New York. <laughs> and it meant so much to me. It probably doesn't faze him at all, but it did mean a lot to me. Well... Things got better, <laughs> as they do, and uh, in 19, 
1988, I was asked to put my name in as a trustee. These children were grown. I was retired. And I thought, no. And then they said, well, how do you know what God's will is if you don't try? So I put my name in the pot. And this was a busy period in my life. Jean had surgery. And the boys were all busy. And I had just retired. And I got involved in the American Red Cross. And I was setting up blood banks. And uh, I gave blood. We took off for West Virginia. And I remember this was October. And I remember feeling kind of blah. And went into Bristol, Tennessee, shopping and had a big time, you know. And I thought, well, she's the same age as I am. I am. Well, why is, am I draggy and she's not? Well, I never thought any more about it. I came home. Jean had surgery. And I had 29 home for Christmas Eve. And we had dinner and a big blowout like we have every year. And uh, the blood bank ran 12-hour shifts. the last three days of the year, and I was blood chairman, so I felt it necessary for me to be there. And the last day, I decided to give blood. And the technician who took the blood said, oh, honey, you need to see a doctor. And he kept after me. And the last thing he said when the shift was over, you see doctor. Well, I couldn't see the doctor because it was New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And I went to the meeting on Monday night, and this woman said, to, she was a nurse, she said, Louise, what's wrong with you? And I said, told her. And she said, well, I'm going to call you in the morning, make sure you call, go to that doctor. Well, I went to the doctor, and this was the same doctor who sent us me to al on. And I went in his office and gave him my tale of woe. He picked the phone, called a surgeon, and within an hour, I was in the hospital, diagnosed with leukemia. And um, I got in there, and then they discovered that I had a rather hot beat, so they monitored my heart, put me on the hot floor, and had five or six doctors working on me, and I'm saying, but I don't have leukemia. They said, how do you know? I said, God doesn't get you up this high and drop you, because I had already had my letter to come to New York for an interview. I went to Stanford, Connecticut, by the board. And I said, yeah, God doesn't lift you up this high and drop you. I just know I don't. Well, one thing led to another, and they run all these tests. Gave me two units of platelets. Had all the hematologists and everybody working on me. And I came out of the hospital. But nothing showed. I came out of the hospital. And on Wednesday, I went to the ho- back to the hospital, had some blood work done. And they said this would be the test that would show. And I worked that day as a volunteer in the hospital, and the girls kept saying, call that doctor and get the report. But not me, you know. I had to wait to go to his office. And I went to his office. And when I walked in the door, they shooshed me right in his office. And he got on the phone, and he called. And his nurse was in there, and the receptionist. And we're all in there. And he made the call, and he said, no way. You couldn't possibly have leukemia. So it was the closest that I have ever been to the God of my understanding. 
And I went off to New York on that Friday. And I'm not sure whether I flew an airplane or I soared with the eagles. But it was a mountaintop experience. And I did not have leukemia. And there's been no signs of it ever since. So once again, God pulled me through and did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Well, I'm not sharing you with you the fact that I have been a trustee because it makes me any better than any one of you. Because I look at a service at a different level. And the one who sets up the table and the one who puts back the chairs is doing a service too. This is a fellowship of equals. It has no seniority. belongs to the one that got out of bed the earliest in the morning. And service is service. Well, in 1992, I chaired the international meeting in Stanford, Connecticut. This is 22 countries around the world. The first meeting was held at Stepping Stones in Bill and Lois's living room. And I could look over there and look at Lois's chair and think, Lois and Bill would really be thrilled to know this meeting is going on in their living room. And we took them up there on a bus, and the bus got caught on the ledge in the driveway. It was a long bus, and they couldn't go forward, and they couldn't back up. <laughs> and it was caught on the ledge, and they had to get a wrecker in to get the bus off the ledge. And we had an extra hour with, at Bill and Lois's, and it was a real thrill. In 1994, I had the privilege of going to Brussels, Belgium, to the international meeting in Brussels and meet all these people just like you and I and it was a mountaintop experience but what I got out of this I sat next to the back row I was no longer chairman of international but I sat in that back row and I was part of this committee that went and I saw unfold the Al-Anon program at its very best there was a big problem. They wanted to print literature in other countries. And they, in 92, they asked us to carry it to our board. We carried it to the board and thrashed it around a little bit and decided if they set up something as we do for Cal literature, conference-approved literature, and use their own um, copyright, that they could do this. If they met all these requirements. And this was open discussion, and you saw participation, the key to harmony. You saw the minority side of this, and the discussion was as long as they needed it to be. And through it all, one of the girls got up and said, well, what if two countries printed a book on the same topic? Where would we sell them? And the light bulb came on, and they realized that they would no longer have a clearinghouse. And this is what they would be given up. And they voted it down. We didn't say, no, you can't do it. We looked at it. And to see this thing unfold was, again, a mountaintop experience. This program works. And I knew who was in control. And I sat in the back of that room and had chill bumps all over me. It works. God is still in control. Well, you think things can't get any better than that. <laughs> and these four boys are grown, and Willie is 
the youngest one is about eight years in this program. And these, I left Brussels on the 25th of August, 1994, and came home to a 50th anniversary. Gina and I celebrated 50 years of marriage. And these four boys had set this big affair up, and we got there, and they did a memorable moment with the mom and dad. It was, it was something. But I had to promise that if I went to Brussels, I'd be back for this. And they did a wonderful job. And you could see, I could see, setting back, I could see this program as it surfaced throughout that day. It was a wonderful experience. Everything I have, everything I had, have been given. It's because of people just like you. You reached out, held my hand. You loved me when I was unlovable. And I owe it all to you. There's a little saying that says, Yesterday is history. Tomorrow's a mystery. Today is God's gift to me. That's why it's called the present. And I'm going to close with this little thought. And it's a prayer I heard right here. And it again is a triangle. Thank you, God, for all you've given me, for all you've taken away, and for all you've left me. Thank you.